Well, happy Lord's Day. It's good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. I also know many of you will celebrate together with me today, Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semifinals. (laughs) So for those of you who are pulling for Philly, many blessings, and to the Boston fans, many curses. Also, I guess we have to say, it's in the contract somewhere, Happy Mother's Day. To all the mothers, uh, we are thankful for you. Uh, Wouldn't be here without you, it's true. My first vehicle was a 1987 Ford Ranger, a brown pickup truck with a bench seat, sort of an oblong window, and a stick shift right there in the middle. It was glorious, and it was ugly. But it was mine. There were repairs and breakdowns all of the time. And yet, it was not ultimately a breakdown that did my truck in. It was my mother. You see, I had some issue or other with the vehicle. I can't remember. But I left it parked in mom's driveway for north of two months. And at this point, she came to me with the first of a handful of warnings, and she said, Justin, you need to fix the truck, or I'm going to sell it to the junkyard. Now, of course, I wrote this off as the typical bluff and bluster of a frustrated parent of a teenager, put it in the same category as, I'll pull this car over. No, you won't. It's too inconvenient. And so... I ignored my mother's warnings. I went about my life. Things were just fine. I drove other vehicles I had access to and knew that one day, when I got around to it, the truck would be there for me to fix. That is until one day, after a particularly late night, I woke up mid-morning and strolled out into the driveway to discover an empty spot where my truck had been. My mom was cold-blooded. She even kept the cash. I miscalculated. I thought that it was safe for me to ignore my mother's command, my mother's word. We're in 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning, and the lesson in this chapter, the big picture, it's quite a few verses, but the big picture is this. It is not safe to ignore the word of the Lord. So our main idea is this, listen to the word of the Lord. It's not safe to ignore him. You can see the two big chunks we're going to try to tackle it in. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you have spoken to us, your people, that you have called us to yourself, that you've given us the gift of faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who suffered and bled and died on the cross so that we don't have to suffer eternally in eternal torment under your righteous wrath. But we thank you that though we deserve wrath, You gave your one and only Son so that we might have life and blessing when we turn from sin and trust in Him. Thank you for this good news, this good word spoken to us. And Lord, as we gather together this morning, it is to hear from you once more. And we pray that you would speak and help us to listen. We ask that where we have put our fingers in our ears, you would pull them out. Where we have hardened our hearts and stiffened our necks, you would give us willingness to change and to submit ourselves to your voice and your word. Do not allow us to ignore you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 20, starting with verse 1. 
and we'll read down through verse 30. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and, and all that I have. And the messengers came again and said, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble for he sent to me for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to Ahab, Do not listen or consent. And so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus saith the Lord by the servants of the governors of the districts. And then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. Then Ahab mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city the servants of the governors of the districts of the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. 
in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. This is an ironic chapter. It opens up with Israel, the northern kingdom, and the wicked Ahab besieged by the Syrians. And Ben-Hadad says, listen up, Ahab, I have these 32 vassal kings, and now you are going to join them. You are going to be another vassal of mine. You're going to pay me homage, and that will help us set up shop. He doesn't say this, but they're preparing for war against the Assyrians who are going to ultimately wreck everyone. So you're going to be a vassal, and Ahab says with all the backbone that he has, of course, I'm yours, Ben-Hadad. And then Ben-Hadad goes a step further, and it turns out to be a step too far. He says, actually, not only are you going to be my vassal, I'm actually going to send my people in, and they're going to plunder you like pirates. Everything that you like, I am going to take for myself. And Ahab then gets the leaders of Israel together, and he says, well, this is the situation. And they say, you can't, they tell him, you can't do that. He's like, I guess you're right, we can't do that. So he sends word back to Ben-Hadad. That makes Ben-Hadad very mad. So Ben-Hadad says, I am going to vaporize Samaria. You are going to be so decimated, there isn't going to even be dust left. And Ahab has this this great one-liner. He says, don't talk like the one who takes off his armor after battle when you haven't even put your armor on yet. And so the stakes are set. Israel is about to be destroyed. This is a pretty hopeless situation. But then, a prophet shows up. And God speaks. He says, I'm going to give you victory, Ahab. And Ahab says, how? And he says, through these civil servants. You know? Social workers and accountants, they're going to lead the charge. And so with this small force, 232, and then with the 7,000, Ahab goes out against the Syrians. And it just so happens that Ben-Hadad is in his cups at the time, drinking himself drunk. I tried to read that line in a drunken way in verse 18. Right, they tell him, hey, they're coming out, and he's just, in a, he's just drunk. He's like, all right, if, they, if they're out for battle, take them alive. And if they've come out for war, take them alive also. It's nonsensical. The Syrians are routed. But the battling, the war, is not done. The prophet comes and tells Ahab again, get ready, because the Syrians are also going to strike us in the spring. And the scene sort of shifts, and you see the, the Syrians and Ben-Hadad, they're in their military council, like, all right, what went wrong? They don't start with the drunkenness, no. Uh, they say, their God, geographically, is a God of hills, and therefore, they had great success against us there. So if we move the battle to the plains, well, they will have far less success, because this is where Our God exercises sovereignty. Furthermore, this is where we can make our superior military technology really serve to our advantage. We have chariots, after all. Those don't work so well on the hills, but in the plain. So rebuild the army, 
get these kings out of the way, let's make a centralized command system, and then we will roll right on over this little people of Israel. And so they go out to war. The prophet shows up again, tells Ahab, look, because they think that God's power is limited to the hills, the Lord is going to give you victory so that all y'all will know that he is God. So they go out, they fight, and they rout the enemy. The battle climaxes with the wall falling down on thousands of Syrian soldiers. This is an ironic sort of twist. We know how awful Ahab is. When it comes to the kings that reign in the northern kingdom of Israel, he's the worst of the worst. He's worse than Jeroboam, who set up those two golden calves in Bethel and Dan. He's worse than his father Omri. Ahab is a vile man. He has wed himself to the Baals, the false idols, and to Jezebel, who was killing the prophets of God. And so we have a question, why does God give this wicked king victory? And you think, think back through it. Those first 12 verses, Ben-Hadad comes to Ahab, says, you're going to be my vassal. Ahab does not call out to God. He doesn't ask for God's advice or help. He simply says, I'm yours to Ben-Hadad. Then when things escalate and Ben-Hadad's going to come and take all of their stuff and plunder them, he doesn't call out to God. He calls the leaders of Israel together and takes counsel with them. Here's Ahab. He doesn't take a single step toward the Lord, the God of Israel. He deserves, really, the destruction that the Syrians are threatening against him. That's what he deserves. Death and destruction and suffering. But here comes a prophet of God with a word of grace. God does not have to speak to Ahab. And yet he does. We have for us a picture of grace. There are many ways to define the word grace, and many of them are helpful, but I think the most helpful is this. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. Ahab deserves God's wrath. He deserves to be killed he deserves whatever evil comes to him. But God, at this juncture, speaks to him life and victory. Doesn't this remind you of your own conversion, Christian? You are going your own way, following your own passions, not interested in God, not seeking God, but seeking yourself, not able to see the reality of your situation, that you were besieged by the devil and demons, that you were but a moment away from eternal punishment in hell. You deserved the wrath of God. But then... Not because of anything good in you, but because of his great love, God spoke. And if you were a Christian, unlike Ahab, you ultimately repented and believed that word. You were made new, saved from God's wrath, and given God's blessing is a wonderful thing that we have been given in Christ. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Hell has no claim on the people of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saved from the penalty of sin. Indeed, we are saved from the power of sin. 
it no longer holds us in chains. We are no longer besieged by it. We are able day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour to fight against sin and self, to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are empowered by the grace of God to live holy lives for the Lord our God. He gives victory after victory, time and time again. We have won battle after battle as we pursue Christ. The grace that saves us sustains us. We're free from sin's power. We're free from sin's penalty. And ultimately, grace will sustain us to the end, and we will be saved from sin's very presence. When Christ returns to end all evil, to make heaven, earth. It is good news. Friends, we should thank God for his grace to us. We should thank God that he has spoken to us. It really is a shame that Ahab, though he hears God's gracious word and, and goes along with it at least a little bit, as long as it suits him, as long as it brings him victory. It is a shame that ultimately he doesn't learn the lesson of Mount Carmel and he doesn't learn the lesson of these miraculous victories. Do you see what the lesson is? Look at verse 13. Behold, a prophet came near Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude, these armies that are stacked against you? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. Why? And you... The you is singular here. You, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. Later on in verse 28, there's another battle. He says, the Lord, the Syrians have said that the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand, Ahab, and you, that's all y'all, all Israel, shall know that I am the Lord. And if you go back to Mount Carmel when Elijah called fire down and the prophets of Baal could do nothing. The lesson is all the people fall down on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. Over and over again, God has given grace to Ahab and over and over again, Ahab has eh, flirted with it but never submitted to it. Perhaps that's you this morning. God has proven himself in your life over and over again, and yet you will not submit to his grace. You will not put your life in the hands of Jesus. Non-Christian, perhaps this is you. I often hear the refrain, if God showed miracles to me, then I would believe. Ahab stands as evidence against that. So do those who witness the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Always one of my favorite parts of the Bible and there in John 11. Jesus tells Lazarus to come out of the grave. Lazarus comes out of the grave and some believe, but others go and tattletale on Jesus to the Pharisees. He's raising the dead. And the Pharisees, hearing that he raised the dead, they don't go, well, let us believe in him too. No, they look for a way to kill him. Here's my point. We Christians believe the truth of the gospel. We bend the knee to King Jesus, not because we simply want to believe, but because what we believe in is true. Faith is not just blindly sort of going, yeah, I believe that, like I believe in Tinkerbell. No, 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 friends. Faith is believing in what we know to be true because we have good reason to believe it's true. Jesus Christ got up from the dead. Historically, it happened. He is Lord of all. I pray that you would hear his word. Turn from your sin and trust him. Ahab never did. God speaks to him graciously. But Ahab 
rejects the grace of God's word. He ignores it to his own peril, ultimately. And God also gives Ahab victory. And did you see why he gives him victory there in verse 28 again? Second part, he says, therefore, actually, let's back up. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, this is the reason why, therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. It's interesting that the reason for the victory over the Syrians isn't so the Syrians will know that the Lord, he is God, but so that Ahab and Israel will know that the Lord, he is God. Isn't that interesting? I was thinking about it this week, and I go, how often do we ourselves need to repent of Syrian theology? How often in our own lives do we say, well, God is a God of the hills, but it's not a, not a God of the plains. Sure, he, he strings the stars up in the galaxy. He controls the stars, but he's not really concerned with me. Sure, God is at work on Sunday, but not on work days. He gives the sun its light, but doesn't work in the suburbs. He's in charge of, of those obviously big things and religious things, but he's not in charge of regular, ordinary things. How often do we operate that way? Nothing could be further from the truth. God is God enough to cause the earth to continue to rotate on its axis and to continue to put breath in your lungs and to give you each and every heartbeat that you ever have. He's big enough to orchestrate global events and the itty-bitty details of your life. One of the funnest ways this truth came home to me was a few years ago before Chelsea's mom fell asleep we, we were sending her down to Raleigh to visit with her on the regular, and that left me with however many kids I had at that time. I don't know. A bunch of them. Stop counting after three, you know? And I had to deal with that perennial problem, right? Dad, come look at this. Dad, come look at that. I need a snack. I need a snack. I need a snack. You know, leave me alone. I can only pay attention to one of you at a time. And as hard as I would try, like, prioritize and execute, Whoever has the deepest need, I'll, I'll meet that first and then I'll move down the list. It was just continual assault from my children. I mean, even once I was on the phone with Chelsea, we're you know, FaceTiming. Oh, how's it going? And, you know, I'm doing that fatherly lie. Oh, it's great. And all of a sudden I hear something in the next room and I look and there's smoke pluming out of the windows of my home. And I realize, like, Isaac has somehow found a fire extinguisher and managed to set it off, and things are a little crazy here. I'm like, gotta go, it's great, bye. But as I think about this doctrine here, there's a point to that illustration. It's this, God is not like me and you. He is not limited in what he can give his attention to. He's not limited in his power. He can pay attention to everyone and everything all at once. God can give me and you and flowers and birds and every blade of grass his full attention all the time. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He hears the prayers of his people. We make a big mistake when we sort of section off our lives into the parts where God can work here. And then the parts where he doesn't work over here, I work over here. I take care of all this stuff. No, friends, God is at work everywhere. This should encourage us in prayer. Our Father rules the world, and he loves us. The Father loves you. Nothing comes to you apart from his good and mighty hand. 
trust him, pray to him, and work in light of the fact that he is involved in your daily life. God's work lies not out of the way of your daily life, but in it. See then that you must be diligent in your work, Spurgeon says. Courageous in faith. Stand where your captain has placed you. Fight in his strength and endure until victory crowns you. Keep fighting the fight of faith day after day because God's power is not limited. He's not relegated to the hills in the Middle East. The whole earth is his. You can trust him. Know his power. Know that the Lord, he is God. Despite God's gracious word to Ahab, despite the powerful victories given to Ahab, Ahab does not learn that the Lord, he is God. Instead, Ahab rejects God's grace. He continues to do things his own way. He acts the fool. Look with me. I'm going to start in verse 30 and go all the way to the end. But what I want you to know is, is the first two battles that we've, we've covered already here, all of that really, I know we spent some time there, it's really set up for this end part, and particularly the action with the prophet. It's all getting us to, sh- to this point at the end where we see it's not safe to ignore the word of the Lord because that's what Ahab does. So just keep that in your mind as we move through these verses. Second half of verse 30. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth, this is a sign of mourning, sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads. Right, showing submission, lead us around by these ropes on our heads. And go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And Ahab said, Does he still live? He is my brother. A marked contrast, just so you know, you can read chapter 21 this afternoon with how Ahab treats his fellow Israelite, Naboth. He is my brother, verse 33. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into his chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father, I'll restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I'll let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be, 
You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Ahab is an idiot. I mean, really? He has the instruction of the Lord. He's been given victory from the Lord. And he is supposed to devote this one who said he would vaporize God's people to destruction. You see that there in verse 42? Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life. The punishment for Ahab's rebellion against God will be his death. That phrase, devoted to destruction, is key for understanding the irony that the author has embedded inside of this chapter. We're going to go back a little bit here to that first battle, around verse 13 through 15, and you'll remember there, God tells Ahab, get these civil servants to lead the battle against this great Syrian army. Now we're all good Bible students here, and so when we think about that for a minute, we think about what are some times in history where God's used a small force to overcome another? Immediately we think of, well, Gideon, right? There's 232 here, but Gideon had 300 men, and he, he led a great victory over the enemy. Or maybe we think of, of David, some of the same words used to describe David's battle with Goliath are used in this passage. Yeah, David was standing against the mighty Goliath, no hope of victory, just some smooth stones, and he ended up cutting the giant's head off. The word of God has come to the wicked Ahab. Maybe Ahab has been amazed by grace. Maybe Ahab is going to be a great military leader like Gideon, a righteous king like David. Look at this victory. Moreover, he's given a second victory. <clears throat> Did you see this? How many days they camped in verse 29? They camped seven days before joining the battle, right? And then, look at verse 30. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. What does that sound like? Jericho, Jericho. Is that how the song goes? I have no idea. The walls came tumbling down. There's different, there's different stuff going on there. But, but you see here, he might even be like Joshua. You know, I know, I know he rebuilt Jericho, and it seemed as if all of Israel had become like Canaan, like the Canaanites, but maybe grace has changed that. Maybe we have a leader like Gideon or David or Joshua. And then we come to the last. We see Ahab let Ben-Hadad go. And we read about him taking what the Lord had devoted to destruction and doing what he willed with it. And we realize the ironic twist here. He is not David or Gideon or Joshua. He is Achan. We brought up Achan a few weeks ago in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah said to Ahab, you troubler of Israel. This is a phrase that doesn't show up a lot in the Hebrew Bible, but it does show up in Joshua chapter 7 for the first time when it is applied to the OG, troubler of Israel, Achan. And you'll remember what Achan did. They were supposed to destroy everything in holy war. And Achan took for himself a robe and some silver and some gold, and he buried it in his tent. But the Lord knew 
And the next time Israel went out to battle, they lost. And Joshua falls down and he says, why have we lost, O Lord? Everything is terrible. And the Lord says, Joshua, get up. You lost because I wanted you to lose because someone in your midst took what was mine, what was to be devoted to destruction, and they have kept it for themselves. They've done with it what they desire rather than what I desired. They eventually figure out it's Achan, and Achan is sentenced to death. Joshua chapter 7, verse 25 and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Ahab is like Achan. He took what was to be devoted to destruction and did what he wanted with it. He really is, as Elijah said back in chapter 18, a troubler of Israel. And the way the prophet spells this out for us really is bizarre, but also kind of neat, makes sense. He says to the first man, all right, hit me in the face. I want you to just punch me real good in the eye. And the pacifist prophet says, I can't do that. You know why? So, all right, well, you're going to be eaten by a lion. What? A lion? Why? Well, there's two important factors here. The prophet says, you need to hit me because God said so. And so when, when the other prophet refuses to hit him, he's disobeying the word of the Lord. And do you know what one of the covenant curses spelled out against the people of Israel is for disobeying the word of the Lord? You find it in Leviticus 26, is that he will loose wild beasts against you. And so the judgment of his disobedience is this covenant cat. A lion strikes him down. And this is the second time it's happened in Kings, right? It happens in 1 Kings 13. And then when uh, some probably priests of Baal insult Elisha in 2 Kings, some covenant bears show up and eat them. All really exciting stuff. Uh, but it's weird. But, but the point is clear. You cannot disobey the word of God and be safe. So he turns to another prophet and says, you punch me. That guy's like, I saw what happened with the lion, you know. Hits him, makes it look like he was in the battle. A little bit of a disguise going on. He wraps his eyes and then he goes and he spins his tail to Ahab. What, what should I do in this scenario? There was a, a prisoner that was given to me and then the guard told me I can't let him go. But then, I, w I always love the excuse here, I was doing this and that, you know, busy. And he got away. What should happen to me? And Ahab says, you have said it. You should die. And at this point, the prophet goes, you know, fool Nathan before David. He doesn't say these words, but basically, you're the man. It's you. And Ahab goes home vexed and sullen. You see the big point here? It is not safe to ignore the word of God. If disobedient prophets cannot escape God's judgment, then disobedient kings certainly will not escape God's judgment. Ahab seemed so close. <laughs> king in Israel. Elijah came to him with God's word. He was on Mount Carmel. He, he was part of these victories. And yet, he refused to submit himself to the word of the Lord. Ultimately, he is killed when a stray arrow directed by God's providence strikes him in the chest. And his blood is finally licked up by dogs. That is his end, and it is a symbol of his eternity. How, how did Ahab go from maybe being like David and Gideon and Joshua, great hero, to being like Achan, 
What prevented him from experiencing saving grace? Many things. But I think chief among them is this. Ahab didn't know who to listen to. He was a jellyfish and a chameleon. As you read through these accounts from 16 onward, anytime you find Ahab, he just does whatever the person closest to him tells him to do. Jezebel tells him to do something, he listens. Elijah tells him to do something, he listens. The elders tell him to do something, he listens. Ben-Hadad says, you're my vassal, he listens. Ben-Hadad says, hey, you should let me go. He listens, he's my brother. He doesn't care about what is right or what is wrong. He is a man without convictions, a man without a spine. What he cares about is himself, his own comfort, and his own security. You see, friends, if we value the opinions of others and pleasing others more than anything else, we will find that we have no convictions of our own. We will find that we will listen to anything. And when you listen to anything and everyone, you cannot at the same time listen to God. When you are a jellyfish, you cannot stand firm. This is Ahab's problem. He's, he wants friendship with the world. He's not willing to make anyone angry. What does James tell us, though? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot love the world and King Jesus at the same time. Stated differently, we cannot listen to the voice of Jesus and the voice of Jezebel at the same time. We cannot be a people of darkness and a people of light at the same time. You cannot bring darkness and light together. You cannot bring oil and water together. You will be one or the other. Ahab tries to play both sides. He doesn't know who to listen to. And because he doesn't know who to listen to, and because he tries to listen to everyone and to please everyone, he ends up displeasing God and not listening to God. I'm sure his disobedience to the Lord made sense in his mind, right? Ben-Hadad will make a better political ally than he will a prisoner. He can, you know, he can be a buffer against the great nation of Assyria. It's a wise political move. You can always dress your disobedience up in a way that makes it seem wise. There is a way that seems right to the heart of the man, but its end is death. Brothers and sisters, if disobedient prophets cannot escape God's judgment, and disobedient kings cannot escape God's judgment. What makes you think disobedient Christians can? What was our scripture reading this morning? Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A tree is known by its fruit. Those who know Jesus listen to the voice of Jesus. And if we do not listen to the word of Jesus, we prove that he knows us not. It is not safe to disobey God's word. If you do, well, one morning you'll wake up and you'll stroll out into the parking lot and find that your truck is gone. Destruction, peril, Non-Christian, you are in danger this morning. God has brought you here and he has graciously spoken his word to you. 
you have heard of the cross, of the blood of Christ shed for sinners, that, that all who repent and trust in him can have their sins forgiven. You've heard of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all who trust in him will be free from death. You've heard of the promise of bodily resurrection unto eternal life. You've heard of the hell that is deserved for all who continue in rebellion against the king. You are in danger. I plead with you, do not go home today like Ahab, vexed and sullen. Listen to the word of the Lord. Trust Christ and live. The only safety you have is in Christ alone. It is not safe to ignore the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. Thank you for his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Thank you for the service wherein we get to give you thanks for his sacrifice and to rejoice together in light of his victory. His is the victory, and we share in that victory. Hell has no claim on your people. Death cannot hold your people, just as it could not hold Christ in the empty tomb. We are yours. This is good news. Lord, we pray that you would make us an obedient people, that we would not ignore your word, but that by your spirit, we would obey it that we would hear and obey, that we would trust and obey. We thank you for your kindness to us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.